This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, first and foremost, we want to wish our Muslim brothers and sisters all over the world, the 1.3 plus billion Muslims, Ramadan Karim and Ramadan Mubarak. We've just in the midst of the holiest lunar month of the year for Muslims worldwide, where Muslims are fasting from sunup to uh, sundown and uh, recommitting themselves to prayer, reflection. And this year, there's a lot to reflect on. Yeah, and what better guest to have uh, during this month than Dr. Hatem Bazian? Uh, we've talked to him. Let's uh, watch and uh, listen to the interview. Muslims all over the world observe the month of Ramadan to mark that God gave the first chapters of the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad During the month of Ramadan, Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset. The fast is intended to bring the faithful closer to God and to remind them of the suffering of those less fortunate. Ramadan is a time to detach from worldly pleasures and focus on one's inner self. It's also a time for families to gather and celebrate. As with last year, Ramadan will be different this year again. There are restrictions on what people can do as the world is still dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Joining us to discuss this and more, Dr. Hatem Bazian, co-founder and professor of Islamic law and theology at Zaytuna College and founder of the Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project at the Center for Race and Gender at the University of California, Berkeley. Ramadan Mubarak, and welcome again to Arab Talk, Dr. Bazian. Thank you, Salam alaikum, Jamal. Ramadan Mubarak to you and to your family, and thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to see you and to be with you. Let me begin by asking you a question to dispel one of the myths about Ramadan that it's all about the food, if one refrains from eating and drinking, but let's say continues to be mean-spirited or continues to lie and cheat, do these activities void the fast? Well, you're maybe asking me the question, uh, would it be possible that Trump can keep a fast of Ramadan? I would say it would be an impossibility. Uh, I think the idea is... uh, of Ramadan is to have God consciousness, both in body as well as in action, because there is a relationship between the outer form of the human being as well as their inner form. Uh, Ramadan is about uh, abstaining from eating, drinking, and all of what we call nourishing the, the, the body, but likewise is also abstaining from uh, injuring people, from uh, uh, having Foul, using foul language, even listening to foul language. So what we what we say is the fasting of the limbs, meaning your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, all those are included. So if somebody happened to insult you during the month of Ramadan, you just say, peace, I am fasting, and you just actually depart from them. And in this way, it's really a way to change your habitual self. So if you would think about Uh, Ramadan as an idea of how to remove uh, bad habits, 
And uh, again, the bad ha- one of the more critical bad habits we have is about overconsumption of food, uh, not thinking about what we are consuming. Uh, I think in here in Berkeley, uh, we have the sticker, you are what you eat. And I think Ramadan could be understood that to be uh, more deliberate and thinking about what you are consuming with the idea to reduce your consumption uh, of food. And then also to be deliberate in your consciousness and your relationship with uh, those with you, whether it's family and those in the community, uh, in such a way to manifest what we call the good society. Uh, So that's how we think about both the outer and the inner dimension relative to uh, fasting Ramadan. Last year, the month of Ramadan uh, felt very different uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, Again, this year, Ramadan is upon us. And, uh, you know, many people are under lockdown. Uh, Many mosques uh, are empty from worshipers. Uh, Religious sermons are done over Zoom. Do you think that Muslim communities have adapted uh, to spending Ramadan away from family and friends and not going to mosques? Well, I think, it, uh, let's say in the Bay Area, there's been what you call a, uh, a, a an opening of some of the mosques for limited participation. Uh, so there is some, some at 25%, and I think in some places it'll be about 50% accommodation. But I think the larger question that we need to ask ourselves, if you have the balance of religious observance versus preservation of life, in this, uh, in this sense, Islamic legal discourse or legal precept says that preserving life is ahead of observing the particulars of Islamic law. So in here, there is a requirement for you to go to the mosque, to engage in religious observances in the mosque, but we have a pandemic, which in essence is a, a life and death uh, uh, situation. And therefore, uh, what we say to people is that to make sure that you observe all the uh, medical uh, regulations in relations to worship, uh, the God that wants you to go to the mosque is the God that also wants you to preserve your life in the relations to the pandemic. Is there a difficulty in people's religious observance with the pandemic? Absolutely, like everything else. There's difficulty for us to teach online. There's difficulty for you to do interviews on Zoom and so on. It's difficulty for not to go and see uh, your elders and visit them, uh, considering that maybe some have already been vaccinated. So definitely these are critical moments uh, and they don't happen so often. You know, thank God every hundred years that we're having the pandemic from the Spanish flu to now. So it is definitely a diminishment of some aspect of the communal part of Ramadan, uh, but the balance has to be struck in there. Preserving life uh, goes ahead of observing the particular aspects of Ramadan. Lastly, I think in parts in here where in Northern California, there's an increasing sum of ease, so people still can do certain things. Uh, So people can maybe gather for an iftar in the park where you could keep social distancing over a six feet and still have a way for you to enjoy a communal gathering. 
but also it's a month of giving. Maybe instead of having these large gatherings, we could find ways to express a higher level of spirituality by sending the food to those who are uh, maybe needing it more at this point than us. Well, I mean, you've, you've mentioned something uh, very important, which is, uh, of course, Ramadan is also a month uh, for giving. <clears throat> and many people have lost uh, their jobs and their livelihoods. It's been hard on everyone since COVID raged uh, across the globe. What can Muslims do to help each other and other communities uh, during these difficult times? Yeah, well, this is very important, I think, uh, even though that the uh, data shows that the economy supposedly is uh, recovering. But I think it's also give us a distorted picture. Uh, you know, there, there is, maybe there is a recovery on the high level into Wall Street and so on, but this should not be confused uh, with a large number of people who, especially in the hospitality arena, in the small businesses, in the restaurant, uh, in the hotel, uh, all these were, uh, you know, or even in uh, some of the taxi drivers in terms of the financial districts in San Francisco and others, these are individuals that really depend on uh, people being around and uh, being uh, able to benefit from the full uh, economy and full activity of the society. And in particular, uh, we see that in women have been impacted considerably because they actually have a large number of jobs that are in general in the hospitality, in the restaurants, and so on. Uh, and from uh, Muslims that I know, both the immigrants and uh, indigenous part of the Muslim community, they're still impacted. Even before COVID, uh, as some of the data that for the study in the San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco had close to 38% of the Muslims were under the poverty line. Wow. Uh, so we don't think about uh, the Muslim community in the Tenderloin or the Western Edition uh, or uh, in the Upper Mission. All these are really pockets of Muslims that are facing economic uh, disparity and difficulty. We also speak about Oakland, Hayward, uh, the uh, far outlying area of Marin County. Uh, so we have considerable need uh, or what we call food insecurity mm-hmm. as a result of the pandemic. So Ramadan is a month of giving. Uh, the prophet was known to be the most generous and he was the most, most generous during the month of Ramadan, uh, was described as being more generous or more giving than the clouds that are bearing heavy rain in terms of a blessing. So I know that uh, there are many efforts uh, locally, uh, speaking from the Northern California Islamic Council, uh, there is food collections, there is uh, uh, a, uh, the nonprofit humanitarian is deli- making the food delivery in different uh, locations, uh, also giving uh, about 25 pounds of boxes for food, for uh, families that are in need at this particular time. So there are many of these issues. I know that I work with uh, Zakat Foundation where they have partnered with DoorDash to actually make a number of uh, uh, food giveaway and uh, feeding during the month of Ramadan in San Francisco, in South Bay, in Hayward, Fremont area. So these are uh, definitely ways to uh, uh, contribute to addressing the food insecurity. It's a small 
amount, because again, we are talking about a massive need. So I encourage at least Muslims who are able uh, to find ways uh, uh, to address the needs that are there. Now, in Islamic tradition, it says, <clears throat> that those who are close or next of kin or relatives are deserving of your goodness. So I would encourage Muslims to look at their extended family, to look at those who are part of their relations and to see if they are in need. Uh, this is the time for you to actually extend a gift for them to make sure that their food uh, and nutritious needs and food insecurity are addressed during this time. So this is how at least your expression of Ramadan, uh, of generosity to be extended to uh, the community, not only the Muslim, but also your neighbors. Uh, the prophet said that none of you truly believe if they go to sleep fully with full stomach and satiated while their neighbor, and again, seven ways in each direction, uh, goes to sleep hungry. He didn't say whether the neighbor is a Muslim or of other faith. He says, it's really none of you have faith if your neighbor is going to sleep hungry while you're satiated because it's, it's a lack of consciousness of the need of those who are next door to you. Absolutely. Uh, I want to shift uh, gears here a little bit and talk about Islamophobia. Sure. Uh, this past Sunday, uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that Islamophobia has turned into one of the instruments used by Western politicians to cover up their failures. Do you agree with him? Well, I agree. Uh, again, if you look at uh, what has taken place in France, uh, uh, France is trying to cover its uh, failed uh, domestic policy. Uh, it, is, it is deteriorating social welfare program for the society. If you remember, there were uh, the Yellow Jackets protests, which was all a large segment of their public employees, large segment of the French uh, uh, working class that were protesting uh, the changes in medical uh, and healthcare coverage, the changes that were being sought in relations to retirement and the pensions, uh, changes that are in relations to education. So that you had a whole massive, what you call neoliberal economics uh, package that were being pushed by uh, Macron as well as uh, some of his uh, opposition on the right wing. So again, the left, center and right uh, basically have adopted neoliberal economics. So in the mix of this massive uh, reorientation of the French state uh, and a massive protest, Macron comes out, begins to uh, target the Muslim community anew with uh, saying that Islam has a crisis. So all of a sudden he became the mufti par excellence. Maybe there's an opening in Al-Azhar for a, what you call a new mufti, maybe Macron and he could bring Marie Le Pen with him down there. So he's, he stands up and says Islam has a crisis, that uh, we are dealing with separatism, that the Muslim communities are separate, and begin to have a whole package of targeting Muslims. And I actually say that uh, Europe, France being a paradigmatic of it, has an Islamophobia and an inquisition problem that Europe is really reintroducing a whole set of policies that are reminiscent of the Inquisition, where you dictate to Muslims that they cannot wear their religious dress, 
you dictate to Muslims that they cannot eat their halal food. So there's actually uh, a legislation to prohibit uh, halal chicken and the slaughter uh, of halal chicken in there. Whether you're vegetarian or not, we could set that an issue because again, it's not that the French state all of a sudden is going vegetarian, uh, but it's actually dictating a halal restrictions on halal. It's also trying to regulate Muslim mosques, closing mosques. And if you look at the regulations during the Inquisition period, we are having the same type of dynamics. Uh, so this is what is taking place in France. It's used as a way, as a, a distraction and as a way to <clears throat> actually escape addressing the issues that are there in, in France. Uh, so instead of dealing of, with the neoliberal agenda, uh, in there you ratchet up that we're dealing with the Muslim threat. You also increase because a part of the legislation is actually to prohibit uh, monitoring, recording what the police is doing. So if you think about police violence in here with the camera, recording with the police, in France is also legislation to, in essence, to protect the police from actually being taken to account because in France, the police is uh, often being deployed heavily in the suburbs where much of the, many of the, not only Muslims, but other immigrants from the French colonies uh, are there. The last part of this is the French is saying that the Muslims are expressing their identity and therefore they're trying to be separatist from the French society. Now, the interesting part is that France began to bring the uh, not only Muslim population, but population from its colonies, Muslims and otherwise, to work in France in the late 1800s and deliberately put them outside Paris away so they would not be seen. So again, in here in the U.S., the suburbs are where white flight from the inner city took place after the 60s. In France, the suburbs where you actually throw out the uh, undesirables in essence, or those that you come into Paris to clean the streets, you come into Paris to work in the restaurants, you come into Paris to work all the menial blue collar jobs. And then in the evening, in essence, if you say a, a, a highly, I don't wanna say civilized, but a highly manicured uh, separatist policy, apartheid policy where you separate those that are of lesser uh, uh, subhumanness and you deploy them in there. So now as the suburbs began to be large and uh, increasing in terms of population as a result of continued immigration, as a result of intervention in the Francophone zone, now the French stands up, well, you are separating from us, right? And blaming uh, what they have constructed, right, in this. But lastly is uh, you, this notion in France, and I'm going on because I think uh, the discussions about what Erdogan, Erdogan is saying, the discussion in France is that you cannot be French. You have to be French to the source. If you take this, which is something that is being wrapped around cultural racism, is that you don't have the blood of French, which means that there is a biological demarcation between being French bloodline and not being French. So these Muslims that have been there for 150 years can't really be French. They never can attain be French. So this, the, this structured Islamophobia that pushed by the state uh, is in essence saying that Muslims don't belong in here. Uh, 
and in essence is used as a way for the state to say we are in an emergency status so we can deal with the social issues of the larger society. And unfortunately, uh, some of those that are being stoked to accept this uh, get the distraction and accept to use Islamophobia to vote against their own self-interest. And similarly in the, in the Brexit, in the, U, in the UK, a similar type of dynamics that Islamophobia was used as a way to really shift the blame from the state into, into the Muslim population. That is the crisis in Austria targeting Muslim population in the Netherlands, Belgium. So uh, this is what we're dealing with in relations to uh, using Islamophobia as a distraction uh, from the uh, economic, political, social issues uh, that are prevalent right now across Europe. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, France is a, is a prime example. Uh, I mean, the only emergency, emergency they have there is really now COVID. And that shows the failure of uh, President Macron and the dis dis distraction. In fact, on March 30th, uh, the French Senate voted to stop women under the age of 18 from publicly wearing uh, the hijab and, and also in, in, in that essence also prohibiting, as you know, kids go to school on picnics, wherever, uh, prohibiting their mothers from accompanying them. You know, so every, every week there, there seems to be a new law or a new happening. I think two weeks ago, they tried to prevent a mosque from being built in Strasbourg. I mean, it's just like going uh, out of control. We've been uh, accustomed to seeing politicians railing against Muslims, uh, be it in, uh, in France or the United States, but also ordinary people are being accosted and harassed. Thankfully, uh, these incidents have been captured on camera, uh, the most recent of which a woman going after an Egyptian-American uh, Muslim woman and her husband in a grocery store in Florida saying that they are not humans uh, because they are Muslims. What can Muslims do to combat Islamophobia in the United States? Well, there are a number of things that, uh, need, that can be done and need to be done. Uh, one is uh, we do need to document these cases and be far more uh, robust in uh, doing the work of collecting all these incidents. Data has to be uh, uh, collected and to bring context to what is taking place. It's not isolated incidents, just one here and one there. It's actually a host of Islamophobic incidents take place. Uh, I know a number of cases, again, from our uh, Islamophobia reporting app, where individuals are harassed relative to their name. So again, you're an employee. Your name is not Osama. Your name is something else. Your manager, as you come in, say, here comes Osama, because, again, your Muslim is associating you in a uh, direct way that you are representative of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, or joking around, uh, where's your bomb? Uh, all these are incidents that are taking place at the job site uh, in a real way. So there's a variety of things in relations to data, children who are being harassed in school, bullying relative to their Islamic identity. So data collection is very important from the, for the Muslims in order to actually bring a full breath to what is occurring. Second, there is no way for you to actually deal with this without actually uh, empowering the community 
and to be assertive. Uh, I'm very critical of thinking that we could solve Islamophobia if we just tell them, uh, people how good Islam is. Uh, again, it's not a it's not a what you call uh, uh, trying to say that it's good or bad Islam and so on. And therefore, if we just get people to understand Islam, therefore they're going to stop. They have you know people have understood the Christianity, but they're still racist toward black people, right? Or they also had a long history of understanding Judaism, but nevertheless they still express anti-Semitism. And for those who at least are around these days in the Bay Area. We have relations and understood the Chinese history, the Japanese history. People celebrate the Chinese New Year in San Francisco and different places, yet the intense uh, uh, anti-Asian sentiment is there. So we have to go get away from this notion that if we just beautify ourselves, that the other will accept us. So I'm against this notion that the problem is that, uh, is that they don't understand who you are and what you need is to go and put fair and lovely, right, as a cream in order Move to yourself over and over again. Beautify yourself in this sense to be acceptable. And I separate between the need to convey to people and have a basic understanding. As an educator, I do need to educate people in general about Islam as well as the history of the Arab world, Muslim world. That's a separate category from dealing with Islamophobia as a racial epistemic that target Muslims because they're Muslims on a racist attitude. And therefore empowering the community to push back and to be vocal about it. Uh, so the respectability politics that often has been used as a way to really do a double silencing. On the one hand, you are not addressing uh, uh, Islamophobia and racism toward Muslims. And the second is that you are actually excusing the racist because you are allowing that respectability politics to engage in dealing with a racist uh, construct that is actually being pushed. I always compare that the red light in a traffic light is to actually get you to stop. Uh, it is not. Uh, it is so. What you need is actually an in a, a robust policy that we push for in order to create uh, a countermeasures to deal with racism as racism, rather than to muddy it up and to say that uh, engaging in respectability and beautifying one's face as a road or a path uh, to respectability, which gets us into this you know, model minority that's been used in relations to Asian Americans. That did not stop racism. It's actually right. continued to intensify because you use the uh, success cases as a way to silence the majority others, right? Mm -hmm. So again, well, we need to be very careful on how we approach Islamophobia and how to challenge it, both within the Muslim community and the broader society. In one of your publications, The Islamophobia Industry and the Demonization of Palestine Implications for American Studies, you make a strong argument by saying that the field of American studies must more aggressively tackle the spread of Islamophobia because it has become an overtly acceptable racist discourse that is saturating civil society in the United States and Western societies in general. Now we also go talk about the othering of Islam and Muslims has become an acceptable norm. Uh, are you saying I mean, when you talk about this, are you talking about also educational institutions? I mean, in mind that this is where the study of about Islamophobia should begin 
not only in universities, but also probably in, in middle schools and high schools? Well, uh, uh, for sure, I think the education and institutions have been uh, culprit and responsible for how Islam is framed and how uh, the relationship of, with the Arab and Muslim world. I think you cannot engage with the study of Islamophobia without recognizing how the uh, academic institutions have, uh, for a long period of time, continued to embrace Orientalism. If you, if you think about the work of Edward Said, if you think about his work covering Islam, which was one of the early pioneers in looking at how the media covered Islam. This is again in 1981, at a time that, uh, so for those who think Islamophobia or anti-Muslim sentiments in Western discourse is only a byproduct of 9-11, uh, Edward Said's writing on covering Islam in 81, then uh, had a revised edition in 97 uh, in this sense. So an academia has always operated with what you call the canon uh, that centers Eurocentricity and otherwise uh, much of the world, uh, including a heavy focus on the Arab and Muslim world through a Orientalism, through Islamophobia, and so on. Even the term itself, Islamophobia, appears in, early on in French around 1910 uh, to speak about the, uh, the French inimical relations or inimical treatment of Islam during their colonial legacy in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Right? So academia uh, bears a responsibility. Post 9-11, as you possibly are aware, many of the academic institutions embrace the security studies. <clears throat> so now, rather than looking at Islam and Muslims as co-participants in producing and transforming society in general, many of the academic institutions uh, responded to power, again, uh, uh, knowledge and knowledge production is intimately connected to power. Uh, so as the war on terror uh, was unleashed, which terrorized Muslims across the globe with the invasions of Afghanistan and, and Iraq and the destruction, many of those academia jumped into the opportunity and began to do all the types of security study, uh, theorizing about what ter how terrorism uh, is and began to get contracts uh, from the government you had the whole field of CVE, countering violent extremism, which I call it the whole field of junk science, but got funded. Uh, and unfortunately, some Muslim organizations also and uh, uh, Arab organizations jumped and applied to get CVE to actually monitor themselves. Uh, so academia and uh, schooling has been uh, really, uh, uh, I use the term embedded intellectuals or embedded scholars that they're embedded with empire, they're embedded in the production of knowledge <clears throat> that rationalizes the whole uh, war on terrorism and how it's applied to the Arab and Muslim subject. And I think what we need is a complete re-examination uh, of what is, uh, how the Muslims is being presented in uh, academic settings, is the discussions often involved about uh, either the first sentence or second sentence or the first article Islam and terrorism, right? So immediately, right. or Islam and violence, or Islam and women. So always a problematizing as Muslims are an exception to the use of violence. So if you think about the 20th century, right? And again, uh, this is not unique to me critiquing, but if you look at how Islam and Muslims are presented, you would think that the only violent uh, group 
in the world is Muslims, even though that Muslims in the 20th century and into the 21st century have the pri been the primary victims of violence. And the Western world in general gave us courtesy World War I, World War II, uh, as, as, with again, World War II, if you want to think, Hitler belongs to the Western world. The Holocaust is a production of the Western world itself and is a epistemological construct relative to anti-Semitism. But they had the audacity to stand up and continue to otherize Muslim and Islam to rationalize the continuation of a military industrial complex, continuation of a class of civilization, continuation of intervention, continued all these policies that I would say at the core are destructive uh, both to the world and destructive to our own society. It's not surprising that the military budget continues to increase unabated and using the fear of Islam and Muslims. Introducing academia and percolating throughout, upward and downward, to rationalize the uh, structure that we are living in at the present period. Lastly, uh, Muslims in America are diverse. Uh, no racial or, or ethnic group uh, makes up a, a majority of Muslim American adults, and 20% are black, according to a two, 2017 survey by Pew Research Center. Since George Floyd's murder, Muslim Americans have mostly shown solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Was the murder of uh, George Floyd a catalyst for a stronger bond and solidarity with their brethren and sisters in the African-American community? I am hopeful that work needs to be done to address uh, intra-Muslim racial attitudes, uh, perspective, uh, Muslims are not immune to uh, internalizing the racial, the racist and racial epistemology within America. Uh, in the American society, and I would say uh, the global society today, we still have an operable racial matrix. The racial matrix that still sees and negate the uh, life, the uh, uh, human possibilities and potential of black subjects. So as Muslim immigrants, as well as other immigrants arrive to the United States, they always situate themselves uh, on top or above the black subjects. And they're always aspiring to whiteness. So they're aspiring to arrive at the uh, white city upon the hill and they don't want to identify with the darker, more, co more complex uh, complexion right there in the valley. And that produces, again, the conflicts in the inner city tends to produce some of these dynamics. Uh, if you, at least both in San Francisco, Oakland, so on, the point of contact for the Muslim community of the immigrant type in general with the black community is often happens at the corner stores where many Muslims, uh, unfortunately, own the liquor stores and it becomes a point of flash between the Arab community often and the black community, which exactly what happened with George Floyd in Minnesota. The owner of the uh, grocery store in there is a Palestinian, right? So you can't actually escape this inner dynamics relative to race, racism, the relations in the inner city, the uh, situating of the tensions in there, which is a byproduct of the racial uh, matrix and racial structure stratification in the American society. And therefore, you actually are producing 
the same epistemological structure in the society with capitalism and capitalism does function in commodifying the human being and situating where people are at. So it's not enough to say, well, we have solidarity with the black community as a result of the George Floyd uh, incident, which is needed, but to think structurally, what does the solidarity looks like and how to unlearn racism, right? Uh, because it's, it's, it's you respond instinctively to solidarity when you see such incidents, but the heavy work, can we transform ourselves as Muslims uh, as well as the broader society to unlearn racism and to begin to shape a different type of society. I do believe that Islam is an anti-racist religion. Muslims are still acting in racist ways because they have adopted a Eurocentric worldview that situate them within the racial structure. They aspire to be white, right? And they don't like, and they want to distance themselves from the black community and the communities that they see are not empowered. The last aspect, you could see this very clearly in Muslims who are aspiring or at least engage in interfaith dialogue. Most of Muslims who engage in interfaith dialogue are only attempting to, inter to engage in interfaith dialogue with white churches, as well as engage with possibly some of the Jewish community in relations to assumptions of uh, access and importance, meaning that they have not even thought that some of the strongest possible alliances that can be struck on interfaith would be with the black community and the centrality of the black church in relations to the civil rights movement. So you, while they are apt at quoting Malcolm X or quoting uh, MLK, they actually don't have any structural relations they don't engage in interfaith dialogue. I am a person that I don't like the whole field of interfaith dialogue. I like interfaith work for justice. So I would actually try to engage with those individuals that have a long history of interfaith work for justice, those who were in the forefront of the anti-apartheid movement from the black churches, black community, Latino community, those who were in the forefront of the uh, struggle for Latin America during the Reagan era, trying to stop the U.S. intervention, low-intensity warfare in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and other places. We did not have to go around and sit in a manicured conference room to think, what do you think of God? And let me tell you my think of God, what's your, your text? And we were actually uh, manifesting the text by trying to actually uh, elevate the work for justice as we walk collectively. So I'm a very critical of the whole Muslim engagement of interfaith dialogue. That's actually, it's an interfaith work for power rather than actually interfaith work for justice. So I'm very critical that those relations are not there and a preoccupation with whiteness at the top of the hill rather than engaging for transformative work in relations to racism and race construct in the society. Dr. Hatem Bazian, uh, thank you again for coming on Arab Talk. And again, happy Ramadan to you and to your family. Thank you. Thank you, Jamal. To you too. Well, that's Professor Hatem Bazian. Uh, Hatem is a professor at uh, Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley. He's one of the co-founder of the Islamophobia uh, project and uh, you know has been on our show multiple times 
Jamal, and in my opinion, really no better person to talk about not just Ramadan, but the state of the world when it comes to, you know, what's happening to Muslims all over the world. Absolutely, especially, uh, well, A, talking about Ramadan and how Muslims can help each other and help others, other communities during these dire times under lockdown and, and during the pandemic. But also, 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 you know, the uh, you know the number of Islamophobic incidents uh, are on the rise. Yes, not only right here in the United States, but uh, specifically in 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 Europe, uh, like France, just like uh, Doctor Bazian uh, spoke about. That's right, Jamal. And uh, of course, you know, as we've been talking about on this show, we we are in you know solidarity with all communities that are being attacked and oppressed and disenfranchised right now the asian american and api communities you know are especially hard hit right now african american communities well we're going to be talking about yet another african american who's been murdered in the midst of you know the constant uh, assault on you know african american men in this country but it does seem like the attacks on muslim Americans and Muslims across the world has taken a bit of a backseat in terms of um, its discussion in the media. But it's, as Hatem said, you know, it's not like it's slowed down that much, especially in Europe. You're absolutely right. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. We're going to shift gears and we're going to go back to some of our topics. Uh, Jess, uh, APAC uh, has been. They never stop, Jamal. They never stop. Campaign. Yeah. Uh, I know, but this is their newest campaign targeting uh, Representative Betty McCollum of Minnesota, Democrat from Minnesota, as she has been leading a congressional critique of Israel's military detention of Palestinian children. Right. Uh, introducing multiple pieces of legislation that would bar Israel from you from using U.S. Uh, military aid to arrest Palestinian youth. Uh, she recently said in an interview to The Intercept, and I'm quoting here, I don't want one dollar of U.S. aid to Israel paying for military detention and abuse of Palestinian children, the demolition, the demolition of Palestinian homes or the annexation of Palestinian land, and now all hell breaks loose, of of course, course, uh, with the culprits. I mean, here is one congresswoman uh, who APAC uh, is unable to put uh, in their little uh, pocket. Uh, Well, Betty McCollum has a long history of, uh, you know, a commitment to justice for for all people, but she has been especially strong, especially when it comes to the uh, brutal, illegal, you know, detention and torture techniques that the Israeli military uses against children and women uh, and men of all Palestinians, but especially, you know, children and women, which are especially brutal. And, you know, in 2020, last year, Jamal, APAC did issue a number of statements against uh, Congresswoman McCollum, calling her, you know, the typical names. They said she was she was an anti-Semite engaging in anti-Semitic activity just for criticizing Israel. And she basically has said that APAC is a, is a hate group because of their attacks on people who uh, try to criticize Israeli policies. 
Listen, uh, 53% of Democratic voters, this is a poll conducted in the Gallup poll That's right. uh, this year, support increasing pressure on Israel and holding it accountable to human rights violations. Yet, unfortunately, most Democrats, and of course, the majority of Republicans, if not all, in the, uh, both in the House and Senate, oppose conditioning aid to Israel. Of course. You know, when, you know uh, USAID has, a, has in small writing a condition that it cannot be used for violating human rights or abuse. You know, there's a whole kinds of clauses right. Right. that the United States has the right to uh, not give you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Except for Israel. I mean, I mean, it's just going on day in, day out where you see Palestinians being abused. Uh, they're using, uh, they've, you know, during the war on Gaza, they've used uh, USAID, uh, you know, the military bombing civilian homes, schools, hospitals. And well, of course, you know, the arresting of, of children and, and the demolition of homes. And they don't want anyone to say a word about this. Well, Jamal, I think, you know, it takes one person like Congresswoman McCollum to stand up and to speak that kind of truth to power. You have to give Congresswoman McCollum so much credit, even more credit than a lot of the progressive voices within the Democratic Party who have continued to be somewhat silent on Israeli atrocities. We also know, for example, that Israel was probably behind the um, the attack on Iran this last week, too, uh, in terms of what they did to the uh, Iranian nuclear reactor in Natanz, Iran. We know that they are continuing to bomb in Syria and continue to wreak havoc in the Golan Heights and, and do other kind of dirty deals. And yet no one seems to kind of raise their voices. We can't expect uh, the House Speaker Pelosi or the Senate leader Schumer to do anything about it. It really comes to really amazing and really, um, really strong voices like Representative McCollum to, to take a stand on this. Uh, she deserves a lot of credit under these circumstances. We'll keep an eye on this story uh, just because... But, the, you know, Jamal, they haven't been able to get her out of office, which is kind of interesting. I know they've tried. Yeah, well, uh, they also tried to get rid of Elhan Omar and uh, also from Minnesota. So uh, it looks like that's a good base for progressive Democrats. Finally. Uh, you know, finally. And... and uh, and they lose in in that in in that sense if they're trying uh, to uh, you know push her around wherever I think uh, it's not like before it's not like what happened to other congressmen you know years back uh, uh, I remember one of the very first books I've read when I was studying political science they dare to speak you remember right Paul Finley but happened to him right and he spoke about his experience uh, when he just said. No to APAC. Right. And, and they marched on to destroy him. Right. And have done it to others. So right. hopefully there are some now strong backing to these, uh, I would say, human rights activists in Congress. Exactly. We will keep uh, all of our viewers and listeners posted on this. And as a segue, Jamal, you know, unfortunately, 
the murder of African-American men by law enforcement personnel continues on a, I mean, I want to say daily, but at least weekly basis now. I believe, you know, in terms of incarceration and, you know, arrests and, you know, false imprisonment and all that, it's probably daily. But yet another African-American young man, 20-year-old Dante uh, Wright, was murdered by a policeman, policewoman in this case, in uh, in many, you know, just outside of Minneapolis. Yet again, Jamal, we're seeing African American men being murdered by the police departments uh, for a traffic stop. Yeah, I watched the press conference uh, today uh, by the attorney of the family. It was heart wrenching. It's uh, terrible, Jess, and uh, I remember something. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing here that was said by the attorney, which which he said, uh, because uh, just to update our uh, viewers, uh, the uh, police uh, woman, former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter, was arrested and charged yesterday on Wednesday and charged with second-degree manslaughter. Yeah, not murder. And she's expected to make first court appearance today, just either via, I think via video, uh, sometime in the in the afternoon. And so there was a press conference uh, by the um, the Wright's uh, family lawyer, and he said the reason that there was a quick arrest, this comes with the blood that was paid by... All, and he named all the African-American men who were killed by police recently. recently you That's know, a lot. Of course, of course, starting with George Floyd and, 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 and going down the line. And I was thinking about it. Yeah, that's true. Because if you remember, when these things were happening, remember the, the father and son who chased another African-American young guy down in the neighborhood and chased him. Basically, they, they liked lynching and killed him. And the father was a former police officer. They weren't arrested. They were let go. The police came and let them, let them go because they believed their story that was in self-defense. That's right. Until one, another person who was behind took a video and the video surfaced. And that was, what was it, months later. Oh, many months later, Jamal, it was very, uh, a, a really extended period of time and outrage and protests it took just to get these people charged in some way for murdering another black man. And, you know, second degree manslaughter, Jamal, is, uh, you know, very painful and insulting for the right family to have to, you know, bear because we all saw the video she took out her weapon uh, uh, and shot him at point-blank range, and he was uh, dead within minutes. And the idea somehow that she mistook the taser for the weapon doesn't really hold a lot of water, Jamal, because in the last 20 years, there's only been a handful of instances like that. And just so that our listeners and viewers understand the difference between a handgun and a taser is so dramatic, is so obvious to anybody. The taser is in your non-dominant hand. The gun is always in your dominant hand. The gun weighs a lot more than a taser. A taser is a different color. So the idea that a 26-year 
veteran of the police department would get confused uh, between the obvious difference between a taser and a gun. It doesn't hold water. But there's a bigger question, Jamal. Why are you pulling a taser on a young man for a traffic stop? What What's the problem with letting, you know, okay, he gets out of control, he leaves, he's not coming after you. He's just, you know, getting in his car, go get him and attempt to talk to him or arrest him in a normal way. But that's not what happens with African-Americans. It's- Look, just there are, there are uh, laws on the book in California and other states that you cannot even chase someone, someone like jump in a police car That's and go right. after them if they were fleeing because you're endangering others exactly. and you're endangering passersby and, and so forth. They say, okay, let that person go. You can always, you know, go and arrest them at their place of work or at home. Absolutely. I mean, they've had his license plate. She didn't have to, I, I, I don't understand. She's 26 years in the force. I've never carried a, a nine millimeter uh, Glock. That that was the weapon. Looking at the picture of the Glock and looking, and also I've actually never handled a, a taser. Same thing. How can you mistake a a taser or a Glock for a taser and vice versa? You can't. I mean, Jamal, if you, you really in can't. In the force for twenty six years, the yellow handle. I looked at the picture. It's yellow. One is yellow. One is black. And one that, is heavier the than the other. Much lighter jamal much lighter and it's in your non-dominant hand so if you're pulling out anything with your dominant hand 99 times out of 100 it's a gun you know my question is and people don't like to ask this question sadly replace dante right with a young man who's white who is his age same incident which he had reach for her gun never. or taser that quickly no. and shot. No, of course. You would I mean, never, that's, you that's the picture. This is the question. It's not the mistake. To me, it's like it's too often that we see, you know, black men getting shot so quickly, just like my police, without right. hesitating, without hesitating. Well, Jamal, and this is happening in the middle as the... Um, defense and the George Floyd murder trial of Derek Chauvin rested its case today. So it's going to go to the jury. Uh, well, final closing arguments will be made within the next day or two. And then it's going to go to the jury. And this trial, Jamal, is only 10 miles away from where um, Dante Wright was murdered by, um, you know, former police officer Kim Potter. So this whole area in the Minneapolis area is going to be in the hot seat nationally and internationally to see what this jury does with Derek Chauvin and his trial for murder against uh, George Floyd. To be honest, Jamal, I've been watching it very carefully. The um, testimony has been compelling and overwhelming that... uh, Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd and killed him. But I'm afraid that the jury is going to let him go. I think it's going to happen yet again in this country where a police officer is going to be let go for the murder of another black man. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll be wrong on this. I hope so. It's really sad to keep watching these time and time again. No lessons learned. I don't know what can be done. This is something that has to be uh, basically uh, 
reinventing uh, the police department across the United States, re-educating right. all police officers so right. we can avoid future incidents uh, from happening. Uh, just quickly, just have, have one minute, and we'll talk about it actually next week. Facebook keeps censoring Palestinian content and In pages. Including you. They've shut down the <laughs> Ahmed page, and uh, recently they limited my page and threatened to shut it down for 30 days for a post post in which I juxtapose the murder of Duante Wright uh, to when the police allowed Kyle Ritten, uh, Rittenhouse, remember him, the young um, white man uh, who killed two people uh, and walked past the uh, Police, uh, I guess, checkpoint. Yeah, freely carrying a, an AR-15, yeah. and they let him go. So I put those pictures and said, "This, this, this is what happened when you're white, and this is what happened when you are black." And then I got that reaction uh, from Facebook. We'll talk about it next week. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco eighty-nine point five FM. Uh, follow us uh, on Twitter. Go to our uh, website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes. And we will talk to you next week. See you next week. <laughs>